Hi, this is a slightly different episode of The Bog House. It is a supplemental edition to episode 11, which was about Antoine Probst, the mass murderer. Most of the information from that episode came from this little pulpy book called The Life Confessions and Atrocious Crimes of Antoine Probst, the cruel murderer of the Deering family, published by Barclay & Co. in Philadelphia in 1866. And uh, you can actually read the entirety of this book online for free, but some of the book was so remarkable that I wanted to provide a straight reading of this primary source material. So I'm putting that into this episode in case people are as curious and fascinated as I am. I should start off by saying that we roped our friend Chris Brock, who is a playwright and actor, into helping us uh, perform, if you like, the excerpts from this book. So he will be playing the part of Antoine Probst in what you're about to hear. Chris and I are actually thinking of developing a new podcast about new plays and providing dramatic readings of new plays. So this is kind of a dry run for that germ of an idea that we've both been thinking about. What you're about to hear is, firstly, the opening of the book I described, which is what you might call the 19th century version of a dramatic reenactment. It's very dramatic, (laughs) and it was clearly written by someone who enjoys writing fiction. The second and third parts of this supplemental episode are going to be a straight reading of the police interview as transcribed in newspapers at the time between Antoine Probst and several members of what was then the police force, including, strangely enough, the mayor. And finally, a little excerpt of the testimony from Willie Deering or William Deering, the only surviving member of the Deering family, when he was called upon at age 10 to relate his experiences in a court of law. Without further ado, take a seat. You're in the bug house. The facts in connection with the brief biological sketch of Protst, which we have annexed to this pamphlet, have been furnished by a former companion and fellow countryman of the criminal, but who does not now wish to be at all identified with the proceedings. The public may, with certainty, rely upon the truth of the statements we have given. It is an old proverb, and a very true one, that when a man or woman becomes famous, either for good or ill, that every action of their past life is duly dragged before the public and submitted to their inspection. Probst, who until recently was only known to a few, is now one of the celebrities of the town, and his name is in everyone's mouth, and the smallest fact connected with him is now of the greatest interest. No one for the time being engrosses a larger share of public attention, hence these details will be eagerly read, and it is the duty of the compilers to make them as accurate as possible. Eight o'clock had just rung out from the town clock of Threngen, a small village in the Grand Duchy of Baden, situated near the Upper Rhine. It was a beautiful night, and the mild rays of the moon bathed the church and the surrounding buildings in a flood of silvery light. 
and all the air a solemn stillness held. This silence was soon broken by a hurried step, and a young man emerging from a clump of trees paced the small green in front of the village chapel in an agitated manner. He was apparently waiting for someone, and all his senses were sharpened to the utmost. He glanced nervously around and at last exclaimed, Will she never be here? This is my last chance for happiness. If she casts me off, I shall leave Germany and go elsewhere. Why don't she come? A light footstep was distinctly heard, and the speaker rushed forward. An expression of relief stole over his countenance, and extending his hand to a young girl who met him halfway, he said, Marie, I'm glad that you have come. I am always punctual to my appointments, but this is the last time that we shall ever meet. Never meet again, Marie. Surely you were jesting. No, Antoine Probst, I am in earnest. And before God and his holy angels, I tell you that we shall never meet again. You shall know the reason. The reason? What have I done? A cold sweat moistened his forehead. His countenance was deadly pale. His knees almost refused to support him, and his whole frame quivered from head to foot. This agitation was momentary, and he speedily resumed his composure. I will tell you. Do you remember the fair about three weeks ago? Yes. You were there? I will not deny the fact, but you were not. <laughs> no, I was not. But I will speedily go on with what I have to say. Do you know Bertha Goldenstein? Yes. Again, Probst was agitated and was compelled to stagger to a tree for support. You paid her some attention? Why, Marie, you're not jealous. If I am betrothed to you, can I not speak to or look at some other girl? Oh, I am not so unreasonable as that. But you well know what you said to Bertha. Curses on her. The accursed jade has betrayed me. Well, what did I say to Bertha? You separated her from the crowd and then attempted sundry liberties with her. What they were, I shall not soil my mouth with repeating. But the man who could speak thus to a woman can never clasp my hand before the altar. Farewell forever, Antoine. I wish you all the happiness that this earth can give, but I will never be your wife. Once more, farewell. Antoine advanced and extended his hand as if to grasp the maiden's arm, but Marie was too quick. She drew aside. Antoine, do not touch me. The time for endearment between us has passed forever, and you are now and from henceforth forever a stranger to me. Here is your plight ring. And now again, I bid you farewell. Stay, stay, Marie, for one moment. Do not cast me off forever. Do not, I beseech you, abandon me to the power of the evil one forever. Every man can, if he chooses, fight the enemy of all mankind and keep him off. At least so says our good pastor. But let me tell you one thing. Stop short in your career of vice and wickedness. Yes, Antoine, you have been guilty of some bad actions. Who told you that? It is of no consequence for you to know, but I am determined to break off the connection with you. As a friend, I earnestly advise you to adopt another course. I have told you so once before, and I tell you so again. Farewell! And Marie, tripping away, Antoine Probst was left alone. For about ten minutes, he remained silent, as if stunned, and seemed as if he could not realize his position. Cut off! Rejected! What is to become of me? The only woman that I ever loved? And all for a few foolish words to that confounded Bertha. Women are fickle, but that little blue-eyed thing is the worst of all. Well, the matter is done. Antoine! Antoine! Why, Fred, is that you? Fred was by no means prepossessing in his personal appearance. A coat 
which had been once either blue, black, or green, but was now a foxy gray, soiled plaid pantaloons, and a shabby cavalry cap completed his attire. He apparently seemed to have a hatred of linen as he wore no shirt. A pair of much-worn cavalry boots protected his feet from the ground. The face was extremely sensual. He had dull blue eyes and light hair. His countenance expressed but two passions, avarice and gluttony. This individual would have been an apt tool for any sharper intellect. His name was Frederick Lavenberg, and he had been in the Prussian cavalry service, but was dismissed for peculation. He was a woodcarver of some talent, but was too lazy to work. He bore a bad name in the village, though nothing positive could be laid to his charge. The other man was Antoine Probst, the son of a respectable carpenter in the village and himself a rather good workman, but, like his companion, indolent to the last degree and sensual beyond imagination. Mm. He paid some attention to Marie Hildesheim, the beauty of the village, and who possessed, moreover, a snug fortune of about 600 crowns, but to do Antoine justice, though the dowry was not without its attractions, he loved Marie as sincerely as his nature would permit, and exerted himself to the utmost to win her favor. He was industrious for a while, eschewed all evil associations, and seemed actually on the brink of reformation, but the force of habit was too strong, and though he had not entirely relapsed into his former vices, still he was not so steady." He visited a fair and attempted some audacious liberties with a young girl who was seen two or three times with Frederick Lavenberg, and Marie, after some reflection and a considerable heart struggle, resolved to break her troth plight and return him the ring. Well, Fred, what is on hand now? Do you know that old Baroness Neusenstein is now at the castle and that she has brought a quantity of silver with her? Oh, how do you know that? The other day I was lurking around the castle and saw a heavily loaded wagon come up, and the man gazed around as if he expected someone, but no one was there. At last he said to me, Where is the housekeeper? I told him I did not know that she was somewhere about. As he would not leave his horses, I went round to see about it and found the old woman in the garden. She opened the door, and I helped him in with the furniture. He told Trichin that the Baroness would soon be here and that she would bring plenty of silver with her. Huh. Has she come? Yes, she arrived the day before yesterday. I thought that I would tell you, but I did not like to come to the shop as the old man is so sharp and looks at a fellow so hard. Hmm. Well, what do you mean to do? What do you think? I suppose you mean that we shall find out where the silver is kept, or better yet, where the Baroness hides her jewels. Oh, they would be a rare booty. I'll join you, but Fred, remember, not one word to anyone else, or I'll have nothing to do with it. I don't care two kreutzers what happens to me now. Oh, has Marie thrown you off? Yes, confound her. I suppose that the whole village will ring with it, and I don't care who knows it or how soon she and I are strangers. Don't be downhearted, Antoine. Think of the fun that we shall have out of the plate, and then the rings. I can tell you what, my dear fellow, there is a lot of enjoyment in one of those sparklers. Yes, if we are not caught. Caught? How you talk. If you keep the secret, how can we be caught if you hold your tongue? But talking of that... I suppose that you can find the tools. Have you got arms? I have a pair of pistols and a sword. Well, bring them here tomorrow night at about twelve o'clock, and do not come to the shop or near the house. You know that my father don't like you. And above all, keep your tongue and let no one in in the plot, and then all will be well. Good night. The Confederates then parted, and Frederick, lounging about, looked for a place to sleep. 
Perhaps some open door would grant him the friendly shelter he so much desired. And then there would be a chance to appropriate some stray articles. Perhaps a jacket would be left, and there might be some trifling cash in the pocket. Fortune did not favor him, and he was compelled to stretch his weary limbs in the marketplace. Antoine soon reached his father's vine-covered cottage. Everything was quiet, and the little domain, with its flower borders and small plots of vegetables, seemed the abode of contentment and modest rural competence. Antoine tried the door, but it was fastened. He then climbed up by a lattice, and opening a window, reached his chamber. It boasted but a few articles of furniture, a rough lithograph of Luther hung against the wall, and the stern features of the intrepid reformer seemed to frown on Probst. He gave the manner but small reflection, and throwing himself dressed as he was on a bed, was soon buried in a profound slumber. The next day, he went to his work as usual, but was silent and indisposed for conversation. He wrought diligently, but when evening cast her shades over the land, he retired to his chamber and said, I shall not go out tonight. But such was not his intention. When the household was quiet, he stole out and was at the rendezvous. Lavenberg was there before him. Fred, have you got the pistols? I want to look at them. Here they are. The chateau stood at the extremity of an immense park, thickly planted with old trees. Large iron gates closed the entrance to a flower garden, and the hole was surrounded with a light wire fence, which the two robbers leaped and were soon beneath the windows. Antoine silently handed the necessary implements to his accomplice, who made a hole in the shutter and entered the apartment. Antoine prepared to follow and stood for a moment in the shadow afforded by a large tree when a small lapdog, whose quick ear had caught the sound of strange feet, ran rapidly downstairs and with his sharp bark alarmed the house. Two or three male servants entered the room and seized Lavenberg in the act of attempting his escape through the window. Props did not hesitate as to the course he should pursue. He walked cautiously away and once out of the park, reached home, entered his chamber and, striking a match, opened an old chest and made up a bundle of clothes. And letting himself down by the window, soon gained the highway, but reflection taught him that perhaps it would be as well to journey by a more circuitous route. And choosing a by-road, sat down to examine his resources. He had twenty crowns in his pocket, he wore a suit of tolerably fair clothing and another in his bundle. He was not dismayed. The want of a passport, about which the small German states are so jealous, somewhat annoyed him, but he contrived to elude the vigilance of the authorities, and about five days after he left home, found himself in Strasbourg with fifteen crowns. Strasbourg was, however, too narrow a sphere for Probst. Work was not abundant, and the compensation too small. He soon quitted that capital and visited Paris. For a time, the gay center of Christendom attracted Probst's attention, and he was tolerably satisfied with his condition. But he speedily ascertained that, though Paris offered a multitude of pleasures, still, gold, the lever that has moved society in all ages, was necessary for their enjoyment. The struggling artisan was like Tautilus, surrounded by luxuries beyond his grasp. America was an Eldorado, and thither Probst bent his way, and landed on the American shores from a Havre packet about two years before the war broke out. The habits of dissipation he had acquired in Paris stuck to him, and he was unwilling to work long at his trade. Want came upon him, and he was induced to enlist in the 5th Pennsylvania Cavalry, but found the service exceedingly uncongenial to his tastes and habits. He was noted for his laziness and personal carelessness, is reported to have shot off his thumb to save himself from picket duty. He was 
the black sheep of his company, and as a general rule, none of the other men would have anything to do with him. When the company was mustered out of service, Probst was discharged and sought employment where he could. He went to Jersey and elsewhere, but was unsuccessful. He offered his services to Christopher Deering, an agent of Mr. Mitchell, who occupied a farm whose locality we shall afterward describe more minutely. Mr. Deering agreed to employ Probst, and he remained with him some time, but was discharged, owing to Mrs. Deering's dislike, as he asserts. He visited Jersey again, but fruitlessly, and, returning to Philadelphia, called on Mr. Deering about five weeks since, and asked if he could be permitted to work for his board. A bargain was made that he should receive $10 a month than his living, and, if business improved, or his labor were worth more, he was to have additional compensation. And this bargain continued until Mr. Deering's death, and under that roof the most diabolical act was perpetrated that ever occurred in the city of Philadelphia from the times of the earliest settlement. Murder most foul, as in the best it is, but this most foul, strange, and unnatural. The prisoner was brought before the mayor at a quarter before eleven on Friday morning and underwent the following examination. How was it that the lady, Mrs. Deering, was murdered? I could not get any work and asked her to go out to the barn to find work for me. You induced her to go to the barn? Yes. And the man killed her in the barn? Yes, in the stable in the barn. Well, how did he get the children there? One after the other from the house. He took them out, one after the other, and killed them after he got them out? Yes. Mr. Deering came home about dinner time, did he not? Yes, sir. Did he come home alone or bring a lady with him? Yes. You mean there was a lady with him when he came? Yes. Where were you then? In the house. You and your companion? Yes. How did you manage to kill Mr. Deering? I put the horse out and he stayed there. When he stepped out of the carriage, he knocked him right down with the axe. As soon as he stepped out, this man knocked him down? Yes. Where was the woman that was with him? Had she got out of the carriage? He killed her also, right there. Then you and he together carried the bodies into the barn? Yes. Was that all done before dark? Yes. Then you went into the house, and what did you get? I cannot tell what he got. He gave me three dollars, that was all. He kept the rest, all there was? Yes. He gave me money on Monday. I saw him then about three o'clock at Newmarket in Callow Hill. He walked by there on the street. How much more money did he then say he would give you? Two hundred dollars. How much did he say he got? About three hundred and fifty dollars, he said. In the house? Yes. You did not see any part of that money? You, you only saw three dollars? He gave me three dollars, that was all. When did you leave the house? About seven o'clock on Saturday night. Where did you go then? I came right in town here. Whereabouts? You and he came to town today, did you? I came by that way, and he went the other way. Before you parted, you agreed to meet again, did you not? Yes. Did you meet? No. He told me that I could find him in Front Street, but he never was there. I never saw him. He told me he would come back to Front Street. How old is he? About 30 years old. Is he bigger than you? He's stouter-like. How long have you known him? About two years. Is he from the same part of Germany that you were from? He came from Switzerland. What part of Germany are you from? Strasbourg. Where did you sleep on Saturday night? I slept in Front Street. That is where you were all day Sunday? Yes. 
On Monday? No, on Monday I was out in the country. Whereabouts? Round about here. Not down where Mr. Deering lived? No. Out at any friends? No. Just walking around? Yes, I walked around. Yesterday a while I was in Jersey over there. In Camden, you mean? The prisoner nodded assent. On Thursday, you were over in Camden? Yes. Had you intended to get away from the city? No. You meant to stay about? Yes. Where was this man to sleep last night? I don't know. He said he was going to Kensington. He says to me I can find him any day in Front Street. Did you not think somebody would be after you for doing these things? Did not he and you think you would be likely to be followed by somebody? I I didn't care. I guess it would be all right when you'd catch me. You did not care to get away? No. Were you ever in prison in your own country? I never was. You never before was charged with any crime? No. You never thought of killing these people until this man suggested it to you, did you? No. Mr. Deering always treated you very kindly? You had no quarrel with him? No. Is this man your accomplice, a married or single man? A single man. What business was he following? I don't know. He never did any work of any kind. Did he get drunk? Oh, yes. Had you any liquor on Friday? Oh, yes. He brings five bottles there. He he made me drunk. That was on Friday? Yes. You were not drunk on Saturday in the morning when Mr. Deering went away? You were sober then? I was drunk on Saturday. You drank then, did you, on Saturday early in the morning? Yes. He killed the woman, you say? Yes. And the children? Yes. Who took off Mr. Deering's boots? He got the boots. Who got the clothes? He put on Mr. Deering's black coat. You did not make up a bundle of things to be carried away? He got the carpet bag and put what he could in it. Who got the pair of big horseman's boots? Do you know anything about them? No. The prisoner here pulled up one pantaloon above the top of his boot to indicate the size of the boots referred to. He had a pair of boots about that length? Yes, they're in the house now. No, they are missing. I don't know about them. He did not take them with him, nor you neither? No. Then all this was done in daylight? Yes. Did you leave the house before night? About six or seven o'clock. Did you eat anything in the house after you committed the murder? Yes, something. There was a ham cut. Who cut that? The woman. She cleaned off the breakfast things before she was killed? Yes. What was that ham cut for? For dinner time. What did you and this other man eat? Bread and butter. Which came out of the house last, you or he? Which came out of the house last, you or he? He went away first. He told me to go, and he will go too. You have no relatives in this country, have you? No. Have you any at home, a father or mother living? Yes, I have a father and a mother at home. Did you ever hear from them? Yes. How long since? About two months. Are they old people? No. This man, you say, killed all but the boy? Yes. You killed the boy, and he killed all the rest? Yes. He killed Mrs. Deering and the four children, and then Mr. Deering when he came home, and the woman with him? Yes. Did you help him kill any of them? No. You will tell everything you know, of course, Antoine. Yes, I tell everything. Um, I'm gonna write. You had two axes? Yes. After their heads were broken, who chopped their throats? He cut them all down. He knocked them all down. Did you not cut the throat of the boy you killed with the hatchet? Yes. You both agreed beforehand that you were to kill them by hitting them on the skull and cut their throats afterward? Yes. That was the plan you agreed upon? No answer was given to this question other than a slight inclination of the head. Have you any brothers or sisters? 
Yes, I have three brothers in Germany. Are you the youngest of the family? Yes, I am the youngest. What is your father's occupation? He's a carpenter. The same as your own? Yes. You learned your trade with your father? Yes. Where did you lose your thumb? In the army. Were you regularly discharged? Did you serve your time out? Yes, I stayed there until the war was over. You stayed your time out, you say, Antoine, and then you were mustered out with the rest of your company? Yes, I served with my company. Did you get into any trouble when in the army? No. You were never under arrest for anything? No. Who took that little baby out of the cradle? He did. They were all killed when I came in the house, the children and the woman. Some of the people down there said you always kept your cap on your head when you sat down at your meals. Is that true? No. I every time took it off. You would have no reason for keeping it on? No. His honor here stated that his reason for putting this question was on account of the supposition that the prisoner wore a wig while he was in the employ of Mr. Deering. He seemed, however, to have a good head of hair. How far were you out in the country on Monday? I walked a little around there. You did not stop at a tavern to stay where they refused to take you in, did you? No. Were you not many miles out? About two miles out. You did not then go away about nine or ten miles? No. What sort of a bag was it that this man took? An oilcloth bag? No, it was about that long and that wide. He got it from the woman when she had come. Was it oilcloth? Yes, a black bag. Was it new? No, it was not new. This other man has a mustache? Yes. A black mustache? Yes. Whiskers and a mustache too? No, only around here. And the traveling bag he had was the black one? Yes. He has dark hair, has he? Yes. Testimony of Willie Deering Willie Deering, the only surviving member of the family, a little ten-year-old boy. He is a little fellow with light brown hair and blue eyes. In order that he might be seen at the witness stand, he was lifted upon a chair. He is a stout, chubby little fellow and a farmer boy in looks. He's quite a child, easily interested, and altogether does not realize as yet his great affliction. He was so young, it was somewhat difficult to obtain his evidence by the strict legal questions. I am ten years old. I lived at my father's, down the neck. A sketch of the neighborhood was shown to him. This is my house in the corner. I left home on Easter Monday. I went to my grandfather's over the Schuylkill. I left my father and my mother and no one else at home when I left. Also, uh, Johnny Deering, Tommy Deering, Annie Deering, Emily Deering, and the baby... Cornelius Carey also lived there, and that man over in the dock. My father had a watch. I would know it. One shown. Yes, sir, that is it. He wore it in his breast pocket, fastened to a chain, a gold chain, a thin one. It was not as thick as Miss Dolan's chain. The axe was shown. Yes, sir, I know that axe. It is mine. I used it for chopping kindling wood. We had dogs there, three... I've not been home since this happened. My father had pistols, a big revolver about that large, like this one here. That is the pistol. The small one was like this. He used to carry it in his pocket. He kept the big one under the bed. Oh, I can tell this revolver by the ramrod. 
I know Antoine's clothes. That is his coat. That is his pants. Those are his. I know father's snuffbox. I see it here. That's it. Antoine slept in the room right before you going upstairs, the room toward the stable. Cross-examined. I know father's watch because I often carried it downstairs. I'm sure that is the watch. Yes, sir, that, that is the very watch. I had it in my hand pretty near mostly every morning. Father had the watch more than I can tell you. I don't know whether he has had it a year. I don't know that chain. Father had not that chain when I left to go to grandfather's. I first saw that chain when I was in the prison. I don't know, sir, when I was there. My grandfather took me there. I saw the prisoner there. I know that pistol. I can tell by the barrel of it, because you can take them out. Nobody told me that. Somebody, a good many people asked me if I knew that was father's pistol. I don't know who asked me. That man there, district attorney man, asked me, and my aunt also. I know the little pistol by the letters P.F. The ramrod also comes undone. I know it by that. I know that coat to be Antoine's because I often seen it on him. He never wore any other. He had been there a week or two, I expect, before I left. He always worked with his coat on. I'm Matt Dunphy. And I'm Melissa Dunphy. And you've been listening to The Bog House. You can find out more about our show at boghouse.thehanna.org. The Bog House is recorded at the Hannah Callow Hill stage in Philadelphia. Our theme music is by Up Your Cherry. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate and review if you like what you hear. 